Are you looking for truth from God's Word that you can understand and apply to your life? You'll find it today on Make It Clear with Dr. Stan Pons. Listen now as Stan makes it clear. Have you thought about all the people in your life that you depend on? Now think about that for a moment. What kind of people do you have in your life, in my life, that we will depend on? The first thing that comes to my mind would be all what we would refer to as first responders. We depend upon the police to come when you need them, maybe at, the, uh, at a crime or maybe at an accident or something. And I think of fire people and those that are involved in EMS. But I also depend upon an attorney because those people have to give me wise counsel regarding the law and how I can proceed. And then I have accountants that I need to help me with my money, especially with the IRS and getting into that time of the year to pay taxes. So we have a lot of people in our life that we count on. But I'm sure that if we think about it, there are also people that we did count on, that when we did count on them, they didn't, uh, they didn't show up. They weren't there to really meet our needs. And that reminded me of a verse in the Bible that says that to put our confidence in an unfaithful person is like having a broken tooth or a foot out of joint. In fact, if you take all the verses in the Bible, there are about 33,000 verses, and you divided the Bible directly in half, the very center verse in all the Bible says... It is better to trust in the Lord than to put your confidence in man. Well, I got thinking again how wise it is to put our trust in the Lord. And some of you might be saying, well, that's true. But you're saying here, depend upon the Holy Spirit. And I say that very confidently because the Holy Spirit is the Lord in a certain sense, in an essence. So we believe in the Trinity here. So I'd like you to know some things about the Holy Spirit. For those of you that are a little bit deeper in this, if you went to Bible college, you would hear the word pneumatology. Pneumatology is the study of the Holy Spirit. The word pneuma actually means wind. Those of you that are involved in maybe working with tools, you'll have what is known as a pneumatic wrench or pneumatic drill. And that is powered by air, strong blasts of air. And so that would be pneumatic. Well, that would be the Holy Spirit, not the tool, but the fact that that refers to the wind. And he refers to that in Scripture. And so he's very much a part of our life. When we look at the Holy Spirit again, he has different ministries in our life. And just three of them we're going to study here in the Gospel of John. One he's called the Counselor, especially during times when we need comforting. Many of you probably have had loved ones that have passed away. And although there's great grief when they've passed away, there's a certain, certain degree amount of comfort that comes to you. And that's where the Holy Spirit comes alongside you and provides the counsel. And he drives you into the Word and reminds you about those great truths where the Lord loves you even though there's a loss. And for those that know Christ as Savior, that you will see them again in heaven. But he's also known as a witness. And all of you that have come to faith in Jesus Christ, whether you knew it at the moment or not, the Holy Spirit was there bearing witness to the fact that you were a sinner, that you needed to have perfect righteousness, and that you needed Christ to be your forever Savior. And so that was the witness of the Spirit that was reminding you of who Christ is, convicting you so that you would, as an unbeliever, then become a believer in Jesus Christ. But then he also is our guide. And I like that especially because as we live this life, we need to have someone in our life that can guide us. Now what makes him so special and someone that we can count on is because he is one that not only has the authority and the power to do what he says he's going to do, but he also has the resources with which to do it. 
And so some people we might rely on, they might not have the power or the authority to pull it off. Maybe they don't even have the resources to get it done, as well-meaning as those people are. But the Lord always has the power, and He always has the resources to get it done. I put something else in your little worship outline there, and that is, who is the Holy Spirit? We know that He's not an it, although He's referred to a lot as power. But we know that He is a person. He's the third person of the Trinity. Now, we don't look at the Trinity as being a totem pole with God's the big guy and then Jesus in the middle and then you have the Holy Spirit further down on the totem pole. That they are all three one, all three have separate ministries, all three in essence. And so we see them as God. So He is a person. That means that He will grieve. That means that there is personality with Him. And he also can rejoice. We also know that he's a counselor. We talked about that. He's also referred to as the spirit of truth. So if you want to know if this is the Holy Spirit prompting you, or if it's coming from some other source, you'll always know that when the Spirit is giving you promptings inside, that those promptings will always be in agreement with Scripture. Jesus says he is the way that truth. We know that God is truth. We know the Holy Spirit is referred to as truth. We know thy word is truth. So we know that all that together means that there's no lies, no prevarication, that you can trust it as being accurate and true. God's mind on paper. So there is no conflict, there's no hypocrisy or duplicity with the Godhead nor with the Word of God. He's also known as the Holy Spirit, which means that he's just not less than God, but he is as holy as Jesus is. He is as holy as God, which also helps us to know that whatever he does, it's not going to be contrary to perfection and righteousness and holiness. And then lastly, like we've been talking about, that the Holy Spirit, he is God himself. Now, we know God the Father, God the Son, but we also have God the Holy Spirit. And it seems to me that many churches today will refer to God a lot. They'll talk about, do you have a relationship with God, etc. Some a little bit, maybe more deeper, will talk about Jesus Christ. But very few will accurately teach what the Bible says about the Holy Spirit. And that's where you have some problems. Well, I don't have the time to teach you all about the Holy Spirit, although that study of who He is is extremely important. And those of you that would like to plummet more the depths of Scripture to understand the third person of the Trinity, I'd be delighted to spend time with you and to go through Scripture and to give you the resources so that you could know God the Spirit accurately. However, it is important not just to know about Him, but it's essential that we know Him. There are certain things about knowing about Him, and we can know a lot of facts. There are a lot of religious teachers and universities all across our country that they can tell you a lot about the Holy Spirit, but that doesn't mean that they know the Holy Spirit. Since He is a person, and I don't mean a person with a small p, but the person of the Godhead with a capital P, that means He is to be known and that He is knowable, through Scripture. And so we're going to teach you a little bit more about the Holy Spirit, at least in this context. But to do that, I've got to give you a little bit longer backdrop, because some of you perhaps are wanting to know, how does this fit into my world today and the life that I live? There are many people that will listen on radio or on the internet to this message, and they're just trying to eke out a living, and they are listening to this message, hoping that I'll help them to have a better marriage, or maybe have a better business, or maybe get out of debt, or a host of other things. And I would like you to know, the Scripture does speak to that. But it's not just the Lord helping you to have a better life here and now, so you can just exist as good Christians. But he's actually doing this to strengthen us in all of our relationships because we are left here for the purpose of evangelizing the world, building his kingdom, 
bringing forth the message of Christ and the gospel to the world. So no matter what, the end product isn't just that I have a better message or better marriage or for me to be out of debt merely. The whole purpose of this is so that my life would be balanced, properly structured according to Scripture for the purpose of making Christ known to this world. So today, instead of speaking about how to have a good marriage and maybe how to get out of debt, which there are verses that talk about that, in this context, though, Jesus is speaking to something that is of the other end. What we need to do to engage our community for the Lord Jesus Christ. So let me take you back so you know a little bit of the timeline because there are some prophetic things being said here. Then there are certain prophecies that have been fulfilled and we're living those fulfilled prophecies today. So if you will, just kind of lean into this, especially those of you that might be a little bit new to this. Jesus now finished the Last Supper. He's walked out of the upper room. He's at the very end of his life. He is walking now to um, the garden. And as he's heading to the garden, he's doing some teaching. He had 12 apostles, 12 disciples. Out of those 12, one had already left Judas to begin to betray him. That's going to happen very shortly. And so he's giving them some teaching. Now, I'm not going to reiterate all the teaching, but I would tell you to begin at chapter 12 and bring yourself up to chapter 16. And that will let you know a lot of the teaching that Jesus was doing while he is walking with his 11 guys, knowing this, that these 11 guys will stay here while he himself will die on a cross, be resurrected, and then essentially ascended into heaven. And it will be these 11 guys that will be the foundation and the pillars of the church. They would be the ones that would be launching Christianity. So he is preparing them to carry on in a physical fashion what he then won't be doing in a physical fashion because he'll be gone. Now you already know ahead of time that he is going to prepare them by telling them that even though he's gone, the Godhead will be with him in the person of the Holy Spirit. And when the Holy Spirit comes to these guys, we know that at that time the church has now begun and the big movement of Christianity starts then. Now that being the case... He is in a section of chapter 15 and now into chapter 16 preparing them for something that we've already spent two or three weeks on and that is how do you handle rejection? Because these men were going to go out into a world that would be hostile against Christ first of all because Christ claimed to be God. So whether it was a secular Gentile nation like the Romans and others, he also had the Jewish nation should of all people known that he was the Messiah because he had so much of their Old Testament but still rejected Christ when he claimed to be God. And they're going into that world to now tell them that Jesus is God but he's also Savior and by faith in Jesus Christ you can then have eternal life and then that's the birth of the church. So he's preparing them for a bit of rejection and some persecution. Now, I really love you, dear ones, and you know that I do. And I know many of you are going through different issues in your life and I really want to help you. But at this particular point, I'd like for all of us just for a moment to lay aside all those temporal needs that we have and realize that we are blood-bought born again believers in Christ and we have been left here for the purpose of communicating the gospel into this hostile world. Now, you might define that. Does that mean I've got to jump up on the hood of my car in a busy parking lot and scream, trust in Jesus? No, of course not. That is not the way we would engage our community. But it does mean that we do, quote, come out of the closet. It does mean that we go public about our faith. 
it does mean that we live as much as we can the pages of Scripture based on the Holy Spirit and Christ living His life out through us. So we will live a life that will be light and dark to the world. It will be a life that at appropriate times we will begin to probe that person or that group of people with the message of the gospel that Jesus died and He rose again and that salvation is by faith alone in Him. So sometimes it's just living the life, but the purpose is living the life so you're building a platform so you can also speak the life of Christ, especially the gospel. So while we're dealing with our other isms and spasms of our own life, I want us to remember, though, that we have another life, and that life is we are left here to communicate the gospel, to do the very things that those 11 guys did some 2,000 years ago. We're to do that. What they were to do in Jerusalem and all the other parts of the world as they were scattered, we are to do that on the island of Oahu, and then to do that all across the world, even from this little tiny church. And some of you that are scratching your head and saying, how can we do it? Here we are in this little building, and we're just here in this little tiny island, a dot in the Pacific. I have to remember that Jesus did it all with 11 guys and he started with that and so we can still do it. And the exciting thing is it's not that we're the ones that are persecuted, you know, we're always the ones that are getting beat up. It's the privilege that we can be able to stand for Jesus Christ. Now that all being said, I wanted you to know that we depend upon the Holy Spirit. Yeah, for our daily needs of life and all this stuff. But in the process of communicating the gospel, there is a tremendous dependence upon him. Listen carefully. Salvation is still of God, not of us. Now, we live the life and we share the gospel with others, but all of that, it's still Christocentric. It's not about us. So we depend upon him through this process. So I ask you to open your Bibles to John chapter 16. Uh, so if you look there first, if you will, I will give you some of the other verses that are in your outline. But for right now, let's go to John chapter 16. And I want to kind of show you how this thing is setting up the stage for the ministry of the Holy Spirit in their day as they're heading into the launching of the church. As we are now with the church launched, the church triumphant, but also the church evangelistically. All right. Verse 1 says, these things have I spoken to you. Let's pause for a moment. The phrase, these things, is the continuation of what he's already been teaching in John chapter 15, particularly as it dealt with persecution and rejection. Then he says, I have spoken to you so that. Underline that in your Bible, so that, in verse 1. In other words, he says, I told you all of this, so that. How many of you hear me often say here, I said all that to say this? Have you ever heard me say that? Raise your hand if you've ever heard me use that phrase. I said all that to say this. In fact, some of you even now will use it, and then you'll wink at me when you do. Well, in a sense, I'm doing only what Jesus said. I said all that to say this. And so here's what he's saying. So that you may be kept from stumbling. He said, I told you all about that type of rejection and persecution so that you would not stumble. Now, when you and I read the word stumble, we think of maybe tripping over the carpet or maybe tripping over something that we didn't see in front of us. That word stumble is, is probably not the best word. Usually when I stumble, it's because I didn't pay attention. You heard the, the night before we left for China, I fell down in my backyard. We had this slope. I wasn't paying attention. I stumbled down this hill, and I, I didn't know it at the time, but since found out this week that I broke my finger. All right, now that being the case, I stumbled. Well, that's true, but it was more than that. It was I wasn't paying attention. In other words, I wasn't giving my full alertness to what was going on. In a sense, I was almost being deceived. I deceive myself thinking I can carry all these branches down a concrete stairwell and I don't have to worry about it because I know those stairs, but I stepped off one stair and I put my foot then on gravel that went downhill and when you put your foot on gravel, that gravel moves faster than a concrete step and down the hill that I went. Now that is said this. He said, I'm teaching you all about this 
type of persecution so that you will not be caught unaware, that you will not be tricked into thinking that you too will not go through this persecution. You're going to have it happening to you. Now that in itself is a whole sermon that right now we can go home to our nice little houses and watch our big widescreen TVs and turn on our computer and do all the sorts of things we want to, we want to do in life. But I want you to know that there is a persecution that's a coming our way. I don't know when it's going to occur. I don't know how it's going to occur. I don't know if it's going to be massive all at once or it's going to be a slow process like a tide coming in rather than a massive tsunami. But I promise you we will not be able to stop the persecution that's coming our way. So he says, don't be asleep when it comes. Then it says here in verse 2, they will make you, now he's speaking specifically now to these 11 guys, they will make you outcasts from the synagogue. Now let me pause for a moment. When people read that, they think, okay, that's an outcast from the synagogue. That meant those Jew boys won't be able to worship on that Sunday. They're kind of outcasts from the synagogue. What you need to understand is that in the Jewish community, just for their own self-preservation, the Jewish community was all together religiously. They were together economically. They were together socially. That means their entire world was their Jewish community And it revolved around the spiritual stuff that went on in the synagogue at the time. So if you had a problem with what they were believing, and I put problem in quotes because you chose to step out of their little box and believe in Jesus Christ, you would be put out of the synagogue. But now feel their pain for a moment. That meant you weren't allowed to worship in the synagogue. You weren't allowed to do business with your your fellow Jewish neighbors. That means you had no socialization. You were basically kicked out of that group. You were all alone. You had no other real friends because your whole life revolved around that. You are totally, completely alone. This morning I received an email from our missionaries that work with Jewish people. And they have a heart for working with the Jewish leaders. And in so doing, they know that those Jewish leaders are those that are involved particularly with their Jewish synagogues. And they took him out for, our missionaries took the leader out to, to dinner. And during that dinner time, they had a three-hour conversation. It went very, very well. And the, the Jewish leader invited him to their, uh, I guess you call it Passover, etc. And so our missionary just very kindly just simply said, what do you all think if a Jewish person will now accept Jesus Christ as their Messiah? As a leader of the Jews, what do you think of them? And they And our missionary wrote to me and said, he gave the the common answer. It's simply this, and this is what the rabbi said. He said, we just don't consider them Jewish any longer. Now, that is a tremendous feeling of aloneness that they might have. I don't think I could ever even describe it for Christians. It would seem like sometimes the world should revolve around our particular Christian group here. And then if we're kind of kicked out of that group, we have nobody really to connect with. That's what was happening. But now, let's go a little bit further. He says, it's more than you just being an outcast of the synagogue, but an hour is coming. And in that context, John would say this would be the hour of Jesus now coming. This is, he's describing him coming to the cross, his final death on the cross and resurrection. That's the hour, not the hour of, you know, 2000 AD. The hour is coming for everyone who kills you to think that he is offering service to God. Now, there is an hour that's coming. Now, I did some background study of this. Some of you might know this. Some of you are so new in your faith, it would be important for you to do this. Now, if you don't mind, let me go on a mini tangent while I'm setting this up. 
when we come to church, sometimes we're looking for three points in a poem. We like a lot of stories, a lot of jokes, a lot of dance, a lot of giddiness, a lot of happiness. And I like to go to church and feel good. I don't want to come to church like I'm coming to a funeral. Jesus rose again. He's alive. I don't want to come to church and get beat up and come back next week and get beat up again. I don't like that. But at the same time, I think we, we miss the seriousness of how to understand Scripture. So it's good to go to a church that's teaching the Bible book by book, chapter by chapter, verse by verse, word by word, and keeping in context so you can get a more accurate understanding of God's Word rather than grabbing a verse here and a grab there. And then the preacher decides how he's going to substantiate his point by taking verses out of context. In addition, it's wise to go someplace where you could learn the Bible knowing that you're going to get it in proper exegesis, which means that it's the right language. It's going to be expositional, means the language is correct, Greek and Hebrew, but it's also put in the proper context hermeneutically. But there's one other element that's often left out, and that's called church history. Because if we believe in a sovereign God, He didn't just work in the Old Testament and then that was it. God didn't just work in the Old Testament and the New Testament. In other words, that's when God was most active. Now, he's gone. No, God did all of this in those periods of time, and it was recorded in those periods of time, but that's the, the rock, that's the truth upon which our lives are then built. And so from this now, we look at how did he continue operating based on the truth of what was recorded from the time, we're going to say, from the time of the beginning of the church all the way to the present. And once you start seeing how he operated in the church, you will see again that there really is a God because the truth of all this life is established from God's Word through the history of the church. So listen very carefully when it talked about you will be offered up by people that are doing this in their service of God. The word service is an unusual word because it means worship. In other words, they think that they're going to be worshiping God by taking you Christian guys and those that follow your teaching, which is my teaching, take that teaching and they're going to now kill you for that. That was their sign of worship. So listen carefully to this. At the time of the New Testament, we had 11 guys. Then we had another guy named Matthias, so that would make 12. And then the Apostle Paul would be the 13th, we'll call, disciple or apostle. All right, because Judas was the rummy and he's gone. All right, listen to this. These are how the guys died that were in the closest part of Jesus' life as apostles. Tradition tells us that Peter, Andrew, and James, the son of Alphaeus, were all crucified in fact, Peter was testified to be crucified upside down. Bartholomew was whipped to death and then crucified. James, the son of Zebedee, was beheaded, as was Paul. Thomas was stabbed with spears. Mark was dragged to death through the streets of Alexandria. James, the half-brother of Jesus, was stoned by order of the Sanhedrin. Philip was also stoned to death. Others, Matthew, Simon the Zealot, Thaddeus, and Timothy, and Stephen, were also killed for their unwavering commitment to Christ. All of these people died a horrific, horrible death because they chose to live a life according to Scripture with honesty, decency, and integrity, and then an outward life of worship and proclamation that Jesus Christ is the only way for salvation and to have a home in heaven. Well, let's speed up a little bit. In the next 300 years, there was a group of men and women who also took public stands knowing that they weren't just going to get their hands slapped they wouldn't just lose a job, they wouldn't just have to pay a fine, but that they would be ripped from their families and then placed in a horrible place of torture, often even watching their own families being tortured, hoping that these people would recant so they could go on with whatever they believed. And all these people that did it to the Christians did it in their form of worship to their own God. 
One was by the name of Polycarp. Now, what does Polycarp mean? It doesn't mean many fish, Polycarp. But it does mean this, that this man, at the very end of his life, serving the Lord, was brought forth to look at all the people that were going to accuse him for being a Christian. And while they were tying him to the stake and piling the, the lumber around his feet, he shouted out to those accusers of him being a Christian, saying, I will never denounce Jesus Christ. For fourscore and six years, that means 86 years, I served him. He never did me injury. And he said, how then can I blaspheme my king and my savior? And when I read that story of the people who witnessed him die, that said they had to keep putting more wood on the fire because as he was dying and his body was basically burning and exploding, his blood was extinguishing the flames and they wanted to make sure he would die. That's just one. Well, we move it up a little bit and now we're in the years of perhaps 606 A.D. until the 1800s. As you well know, there was a lot of people who died in the name of Christ but there was a group of people who were very religious and really wanted to hang on to their religion so much. But that was also the days of the Reformation. In the days of the Reformation, the Reformers very much wanted to make sure that Scripture was accurately taught and that salvation was by faith alone in Jesus Christ. You're listening to Make It Clear with the teaching of Dr. Stan Pons, founder of Make It Clear Ministries. Make It Clear is dedicated to taking the Word of God with clarity into every person's world. It is the support of listeners like you who make the ministry of Make It Clear possible. You can provide your tax-deductible gift to Make It Clear online by going to makeitclear.org or you can mail your gift to Make It Clear, P.O. Box 607-901, Orlando, Florida, 32860. Thank you for helping us make it clear. If you would like to have Dr. Pond speak at your church or event, please send us an email at tellmemore at makeitclear.org. Thank you, and remember to make it clear. Thank you.